welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Dr. Abdullah Albiati, and he's the CEO and co-founder of Medical Chain. Medical Chain is a company that uses blockchain technology to store health records securely. And so by digitizing health records, they aim to empower patients and create a more comprehensive healthcare experience. So Abdullah graduated from Imperial College London in 2011, started as a surgical trainee in London, then moved on to GP specialist training, uh, continues to practice as a GP even now with his company. Uh, Prior to founding Medical Chain, he founded a company called Discharge Summary, which was an application used in hospitals, and that produced accurate and reliable discharge summaries, as you can tell. Um, And yeah, if you want to get in touch with him, links are in the show notes, but I hope you guys enjoy this episode. So Abdullah, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, mate? I'm very good. It's nice to see you again, James. You too, buddy. And I'm loving your gamer headset that you've got going on that's... uh, in theory, camouflage, but makes you stand out, I would say. People can't see this podcast, can they? <laughs> <laughs> That's the main thing. <laughs> yeah, you've got a random microphone. I can't see what's around it. Um, what games are you playing, mate? Uh, mainly Call of Duty. Okay, um, Warzone. Yes, you know of the course, one. obviously. Uh, so we have a WhatsApp group where there's, there's a few boys on it, uh, and we always message at about 11 midnight. Yeah. Who's answering the call? Yeah. <laughs> 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 and then basically go and we rock and roll uh and then sometimes we win i like to say we win more 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 times than often and nice we post it on the whatsapp group and um i can't tell you our, our names on the team <laughs> <laughs> they're quite offensive but, uh no that's that's a good de-stressor at the end of the day Big question for the gamers listening where what, what's, where's your favorite place to drop oh prison has to be prison you drop in pr- interesting a- every time if you dominate the top of prison <laughs> it's game over for everybody else you've got helicopters in there you've got most wanted you've you've got a, a buy station you, you're just ready to go for the rest of the assault you just need to win the first few minutes in prison and you're okay there you go i'm gonna clip that for uh for some interesting content for all the gamers nice um cool mate so listen the way we start these podcasts is uh, i'll get you to tell your story so uh, obviously i know all about you and your background we've talked on many occasions known each other for probably a few years now even mm. um seeing each other out and about doing different things in the space you're doing some cool stuff now but uh yeah tell me how it all how it all began mate yeah so i mean obviously you've you've heard the story to death by now uh, but... <laughs> we've been on so many panels together that uh, i could probably do this bit for you but <laughs> exactly exactly um so yeah so it's so a simple background um normal medical student at uh, imperial college london um going into f1 foundation year preston starting off there destined to be an ent surgeon gonna be an ent surgeon passing my um mrcs and doing all my papers and 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 posters and presentations managed to get into uh, London surgical training um, and thought okay great you know this is the beginning of my career and then realized wow like this is a lot of hard work like big step up you know you're you're not even on call you're finishing at eight nine o'clock at night Um, there's a lot of attention to detail it really you know it's, it's a true vocation it really takes over your life and for me I have to admit I noticed that that was the real test of how committed am I actually to surgery. And I remember a good example, uh, which was really the um, defining moment for me, realizing that this is not the career for me, is we were doing a a thyroidectomy 
which is a, a surgical procedure to remove a, a part of the thyroid. Um, and I remember we, we've been there for about an hour and a half. It's a big head and neck surgery. And then the consultant just nicked one of the large blood vessels in the area. Now, normally as a trainee, you need to be like, wow, this is amazing. This is where I'm going to learn. You know, the consultant's going to show me how I get out of trouble when I do this in the future. And, and my response was completely different. You know, my, my mindset at the time was, oh, oh my God, we're going to be here another hour for this. And I just thought if that's the attitude you've got, you know, it's not fair to me myself and it's certainly not fair to the patients. And you know, I really, really, for my friends who continued in the surgical career and for the other surgeons that are out there that might be listening to this, you know, I have huge respect for them. And I think the general public know that how hard surgeons work, but I don't think they know really how hard they work. And to be a true surgeon, you know, it's like a plumber or anybody else, an apprentice. You want the guy or the girl who's done a thousand of these procedures, not 500. So if it's eight o'clock at night and it's time to go home, but you're offered to do another one, you know, the true professional is going to say, I need to do another one because there's no risk or no harm in perfecting my skill. So when that when that occurred, I realized, right, this is it. I'm, I'm, I can't continue with this. I, I finished to the, the point of a surgical training, uh, the first bit before you become a registrar, if you will. And then I thought I need a different career change. Whilst I was thinking about it, I locumed a lot in accident and emergency. Uh, so that was at St. Mary's Hospital, Royal London. Um, and I thought, OK, I like trauma stuff. I'm, I'm bringing my surgical skills in here. Locuming paid quite well, but it's not really a career, you know. And um, I was very privileged because I think the department recognized my skills. They put me on a registrar pay packet, uh, which was very good, very lucrative in accident and emergency. But I thought this is not not really for me. And they're trying to encourage me to be a, a, a and e trainee. But I, I really thought there's more to my medical career than just being a medic on the wards or in the, in the department. I really do want to have some kind of business idea, do some kind of innovation or entrepreneurial stuff. So talking to my other friends who'd done GP and basically they're now finishing GP, you know, I'm still trying to make my mind up and these guys are coming out the other end and they're telling me how they're playing five side football every evening. I know that feeling, mate. Yeah, I mean, you were in anaesthetics and, and you, yeah. know, you know, it's like, what are you doing this weekend? And, and the GPs would just reply to, what are you talking about? It's a weekend, why would I be working? <laughs> so yeah. um, I switched into GP and by that time, actually, I'd been married now for about two or three years. Uh, my wife is originally from Bradford. So I said, OK, we'll go up north. We're not we're not going to live in Bradford, but we'll live in Leeds. Um, so managed to live in Leeds. <laughs> Um, and I mean, it's a dream come true. Like I absolutely love Leeds, like to my core. It's for me, it's the, it's the best city. It's um, NHS England around the corner, haven't you? Well, I mean, I did NHS digital, is it? Yeah, I did not know this stuff. I did not know this stuff, (laughs) but everything is in Leeds, like NHS England, NHS digital, EMIS, system one, TPP. They are all based in Leeds. They all sit here in Leeds. Oh, wow. Um, And as a city, you know, our population is 800,000. Like we're tiny, but if you actually go to the city center, it's got everything, you know, it's got everything you'd want and need. And and to commute to London is two hours by train direct. Um, And then where I live, like if if I could show you where I live, I've got sheep about a hundred meters from my front door. So it was the place for me. And really, doing the GP career and having, you know, massive credit to the clinical supervisors I had during my journey, they respected that I was older than everyone there. And they really, I would say that they really tailored the training to me. 
You know, they really said I could come in when I wanted, I could leave when I wanted, I'd get out of it what I wanted. And when I explained to them what I wanted to do with my actual GP career and, and, and the kind of entrepreneurial sides, they all encouraged it. And they just said, yeah, you know, your clinical responsibilities, you know, your rotor, as long as you're taking these boxes and no one's got a problem with you, we don't have a problem with you. So, you know, it's quite a unique experience that I think, especially coming from surgery. Yes. In London, you know, especially coming from that environment, like, I mean, it's, it's hard, I think, to sometimes describe this to people who are non-medics, but I, I, I normally say it as I was treated like an adult for the first time in my life. And, and I don't know how to convey that message across. You know, you were just treated like somebody who could be responsible to make their own decisions. And that really flourished better decisions and strengthened my, you know, love for my department and my love for my clinical supervisors because... I mean, I, I can tell you a funny story. Like this is fast forwarding a bit when I've actually now started my company after doing a few things in cardiology and building medical chain. I'm now a third year GP trainee. I've not done any part-time training. I've not done any sabbatical. I've done everything full on. So full-time training, full-time running a company, flying to South Korea, preparing for exams in a plane, landing, doing my exams. Wow. Um, and I remember I just started my third year GP training, which is your final one year in a GP practice, just you and the clinical supervisor who's the GP partner. And lovely lady, uh, Dr. Sarah Harding, uh, she won't appreciate me giving her a shout out. She won't listen to this <laughs> anyway, but um, she, is, she is Mrs. NHS is the way to describe her. You know, salt of the earth has sacrificed for her local community all her life. And really, you know, anybody deserves a medal, it's her. And I remember we were sat down the first day and she wanted to go through what my diary would be in the practice. You know, this is when we do our meetings. This is your clinics. This is our half day teaching. And I'm letting her finish. Um, I said, OK, Sarah, cool. That's really nice. So basically, I can't work here for five days a week. I need to take Fridays or Mondays off every week. And she just looked at me and said, sorry, are you a part time trainee? I said, no, no, I'm a full time trainee but I'm not going to be here Friday or I'm not going to be here Monday. I need an extra day of the week to do my business. Stuff. Very bold. Really bold. Very really bold. Ballsy. And um, she just looked at me and I could tell she's a bit confused. I opened up our company website. I explained to her, look, you know, I've been doing this for the past few years, raised $24 million. Um, I gave her like the Jose Mourinho uh, conversation. I said, I'm not one from the bottle, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit special compared to the other trainees you've seen. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I need your support with this. Uh, and she just looked at me and she just said, what if I say no? Uh, and I said, well, then I quit. I quit GP training. It's, it's as easy as that for me. You know, I've got to a position with this company where this is really what I need to do. But you are going to take away from me something which I'm really passionate about, which is GP. Uh, and it really has been my calling. And even now talking to you, you know, I was telling you, I've got a clinic this afternoon. I had a clinic yeah. yesterday. You know, I'm an active GP. I'm the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners Yorkshire faculty. You know, I sit, sit on the Leeds Local Medical Committee board. Like, I'm a very active member of GP society. But that's the beauty of, of general practice is you can split your time. So anyway, Sarah said, fine, you're going to have to take some kind of study leave slash annual leave. And we're, you're going to burn through your leave very quickly if we start doing this. And I said, that's absolutely fine. Let's do that. And let me prove to you that I'm a very sound doctor. And, you know, thankfully, because of the surgical experience, the A&E experience, when I'm coming to her as a GP trainee, I've got a bit more about me. And I was able to take a lot of load off her. 
So whenever there were extra evenings, someone needed to come in in the morning, there were emergencies in the clinic to do with children or adults or, or seizures or asthma or whatever the emergency was, I was very capable of dealing with it. And our relationship grew with very good friends, with very close friends. Before lockdown, she'd come over for a cup of tea. You know, we'd have chats. Even though I, don't, I don't work for anymore. We'd always meet up. And um, I tell her, you know, we go back to that moment. I go, Sarah, you know, the first time you met me and when we had that kind of standoff, you know, what were you thinking? <laughs> and, and she thought, number one, I thought you were such an arrogant ass. <laughs> um, and she's saying, number two, I really thought you were like Del Boy. Um, and, I, and I said, yeah, I mean, to be fair, I have been called Del Boy since university <laughs> days. Uh, but I've just kind of found now where I can actually deploy this kind of Del it's an Boy skill term. And for our listeners around the world, that relates to uh, a comedy called Only Fools and Horses about a couple of wheeler dealer cockney lads that were uh, <laughs> trying to make their way buying and selling stuff. Let's put it that yeah. way. <laughs> it's a brilliant, I mean, it's one of the most popular shows ever um, launched or, or shown on the BBC. And um, <laughs> I mean, the, the story is really relevant because, as you say, it's these two guys who are always trying to make it. always hustling mate always hustling and they're so close and they always fall just (laughs) short you know and he always tells his brother Rodney you know this time next year we'll be millionaires (laughs) Uh, and it's something I tell my teammates all the time as well (laughs) (laughs) oh so funny it's it's so much of that I can relate to like even even going right back to where you're talking about you know when a when something means that a surgery is going to be more exciting but last longer you then just think oh it's going to last longer Oh, I can I can relate to that. There's a, there's a hell of a lot of self awareness that comes for, or or that you've displayed there in in picking the right specialty for you. I think that's so 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 important that people don't just aspire to what they perceive to be the most successful, because ultimately you're not going to last. It's it's not going to it's not going to be sustainable for you. And I've got so I've got so much time for the fact that you're out here saying GP is my calling. I'm happy. I've reached the point where I have so much passion for it. I love the job. Like awesome. Because there are far more people I believe coming from medicine myself that would love the permission to say that, but feel that they often can't, whether that they are pushed to do surgery or they're pushing themselves to do surgery or, or something different, as you say, cardiology, whatever it is that these perceptions that they're higher or, or, or whatever it, it comes down to knowing who you are and what you're going to be the best at or good at or enjoy. And it's hard, uh, man. It's hard because the thing is, I, you know, to, to, to be frank, you know, I, I was, and I still am to a certain extent, to be honest with you, a GP basher, you know, and, <laughs> and, and especially when I was a surgical trainee and I was taking the um, referrals by the GPs, you know, I would be effing and blinding and, you know, I, I wouldn't let the GP finish their first sentence. Oh, it's a dodgy culture, isn't it? It's very, do- and I just tell them, sorry, sorry, just stop. What is your diagnosis? Mm. You know, what have you done? What yeah. Have you, yeah. And they couldn't give me a diagnosis. I said, right. So what you need to do is figure out why you're referring this patient to me and then get back to me. I was, I was a complete ass. I know. Right. As a junior that they've been in your position already about 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're and, telling them. And, and, and to be honest with you, the department loved me because for the, for the ENT consultants that I had, mm. I was the best gatekeeper, gatekeeper they'd, they'd yeah. ever seen, you know, nothing could get past my watch unless it truly needed to, or I mm. would try and deal with it. So I'd never ever end up on the ward. So, so when Abdullah was on call, the next day on the post-take ward round, it's like the beds are empty. It's like, mm. oh, man, no, no one's getting through me. Like I dealt with it in A&E and I sent them home. Or mm. these guys, I said, well, that's Max Fax. That's this. You've got a head injury. Don't send them here. Um, 
but that's the thing is I, I was so, you know, for my friends and my colleagues, they'd hear how I used to speak about being a GP. So then when I realized, oh crap, like this is actually <laughs> me. Like I, I want to be a GP. A lot of it was swallowing my pride, if you will. Um, and reflecting on the kind of negative attitudes I had towards GP, the, the, the incorrect and misinformed, uh, attitude and principles I had towards GP and you know especially like for my family like my dad going around every 10 seconds telling every family member oh my son is a surgeon my son is a surgeon it's like no dad I'm going to be a GP what you know what's GP you know you, you always told me GP was like this I go dad to be honest with you I think it's the right thing and again for my parents I suppose back then it was funny because even when I was starting medical chain and I'm now halfway through my GP career like I've only got a few months to finish my dad would literally say to me, but you can go back to ENT, can't you? You can still be in ENT. It's like, no, dad, like that, that bridge is burnt. Like it's, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going over that bridge. And, and did now, you go out in like a blaze of glory in your final ARCP? Did you just like chuck an empty folder at them and just be like, I'm off? <laughs> no, no, man, not, not with those guys. I'm telling you that they could, end your, <laughs> they'll end your career wherever you are around the world. It's not worth it. Uh, and to be honest, uh, they don't, they didn't, they wouldn't deserve that attitude. You know, they, they are, they are there to train serious people who absolutely. are seriously committed to surgery and they don't want time wasters. And, you know, I, I have nothing bad to say against surgery because the people that do it, they, they might have their own issues. They might have their own demons, but we as a society depend on them so much. Absolutely. And if there's, if there's not people like that, that are sacrificing their family time and, and their own, you know, I always say this to, to the medical students or the junior doctors, which I, which I mentor, you know, I, I say at the end of the day, I just have a medical degree. There's nothing that makes me or James or any other person who's gone into this kind of field of healthcare special. We all have the same degrees. We all had the same training. The difference is I had the opportunity, the time, and maybe a bit of the, 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 the courage to push myself and challenge myself, which somebody else stayed on the conveyor belt towards a path to being yeah. a consultant or a GP or whatever it may be. So I'd always say you need to challenge yourself. You need to encourage yourself because there's nothing about those surgeons that means they couldn't have been me, or there's nothing about my GP colleagues, which means they couldn't have done what I've done. Um, obviously there's some, some family circumstances. People have some really difficult uh, individual situations, but by and large, man, there's nothing special about us. If we're being frank, frankly honest, but I don't 100%. You know, we just we just went out and did it and tried, got some traction and thought, OK, maybe I can dig a bit deeper here. Yeah. Yeah, I really relate to that, man. So tell me then about. Well, actually, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in the idea for medical chain. I'm interested in kind of what was your prior relationship to that kind of sector and everything? Or in fact, first of all, what what is medical chain, which is the first company that that well, might not have been the first company you started, but it's the first company I know of you. Um but tell me all about Medical Chain. Yeah, so so Medical Chain is a company that started in 2017. Uh, whilst I was a GP trainee, um, second year GP trainee, and I was in the cardiology department. And essentially, it comes down to I want to empower patients to have access to the medical records. And I don't mean in the way that we do it at the moment. And even though we do it probably one of the best in the world via access to your primary care records to a certain extent, but you can't really see everything. What I'm trying to get to is I want patients to be the conduit of information. So when they come to an appointment, be it in primary care, secondary care, locally, nationally, internationally, they are coming with their medical records on their smart device and saying, this is me. 
And as a clinician, I can totally trust the information they're coming with, knowing that it's not been deleted, it's not been altered, it's not been manipulated in any way. And the only information they're presenting to me is another certified clinician who's inputted that information. And I think we will get away from this idea of EHR systems, which are big, bulky. You know, they've got huge amounts of auditing software on it. And, you know, that's, that's not what I care about as a clinician. That's good for, for maybe a practice manager, for somebody else. I just need their EHR system. And the same for a patient. They just need to see the electronic health records, which is what's my, what's my investigation results? What's the narrative that the clinicians have been writing about? And what's the clinical documents which have been uploaded to my records? That's all they need to see. And I think with the computing power we have today in our mobile devices and how everything has gone, you know, everything's cloud software. So why am I depending on a computer? Or oh, has it got EMIS installed? Has it got TPP installed? What, why does it need it installed? I should be sat on my computer at home. It's a cloud. I can open it and the patient and me can communicate with each other remotely, face-to-face, wherever it may be. So this is the principle of medical chain. Um, the unique thing or the reason we call it medical chain is because a lot of our technology is built on blockchain technology. And it's not something that we are, you know, romantically committed to and, are, you know, blockchain is the future and, you know, Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff. But it just, it seemed to serve the purpose that we were trying to deliver of this is a system which is immutable, auditable and when the patient is going to be presenting their records in a read-only format i can know that this information which is essentially authenticated across different networks different node holders means that this is the real version of the truth that i'm communicating with the patient that being said you know the journey we've been on for the past three or three and a half years nearly four years you can see how blockchain is coming into its own you can see how different industries are using it now supply chains walmart uh, banking, land registry, and unfortunately, medicine, as, as you'll know, and some of your listeners will know as well, we're always the laggards. You know, the fact that we're talking about telemedicine now with such like excitement and like oh, emboldenment, it's like, do me a favor. Like, <laughs> you know, this is this has been around for a decade. You know, we had MSN chat, we had you know so many different ways to do video calling, and this has been knocking on the door for so long. And unfortunately, the the senior medics are the ones that said it can't be done. It won't be done. The population won't know how to use it. The old people will be get le- left behind. There's injustice for people that don't have the internet. Just absolute rubbish, you know? And I think- Evidence-based pre- rubbish now as well. It's just, and it always was rubbish. And they'd quote you that as well. That's the hilarious thing. They'd quote you evidence-based and they say, there's no evidence to show that telemedicine is better than blah, blah, blah. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, how how do we go about our normal lives right now? How, how, how are the grandparents- communicating with their grandchildren right now is not all on video call is it not more convenient like they don't have to get up go shower dress drive to the grand grandchildren's home see them and then drive all the way back and find parking why is it not the same in a gp practice actually on the way an mrsa when they go you know the rest of it it's just crap it's just and and unfortunately i think this is the thing that you know we we have to challenge as kind of entrepreneurs or or hopefully the generation of medics which is coming forward or even non-medical people but people that are interested in in health tech you know you have to challenge the status quo and i think you know you you asked me just now or maybe you were implying you know it's not the first business i i would made it's not the first business i made i actually made a a theory test website to help people get ready for their car theory test and that was when i was a f2 uh, or even um, yeah or even a medical student it goes that far back but i've always seen myself as a troublemaker you know, when somebody tells you this is the way it's always been, there's some, you know there's something wrong when somebody 100%. gives you that answer. 
and and that's probably another another tip i'd say to people anybody moving into kind of entrepreneurial medicine if you ever hear the statement well that's the way it's always been dig start digging because that means there's a big problem in that sector in that area yeah i think what's interesting about what you said there is where healthcare health tech is in comparison to other areas to spot innovation i think you're absolutely right that that it seems that b2b is behind b2c so consumer stuff that's coming out things like tiktok now you know, for advertising to consumers and all the rest of it, that is, that's big in consumer. It's going to only become bigger, 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 bigger. We know that that's going to eventually bleed into B2B. When it does bleed into B2B, it's probably going to reach health last. And so for, as you say, for entrepreneurs that are looking at the next thing that's going to happen or the next thing that they want to do or the next technology they want to back or the next platform that they want to back, you can kind of just look at what's happening in consumer and then just kind of plot it for the next 10 years as to like, well, if I start now, on my and there are a few doctors doing very well on tiktok by the way but again very consumer focused but you know it's like have a look at what's going on around you with other bits of technology how are people absorbing information how are people disseminating that information how are they doing it and and as you say you could have you could have predicted what's happening in telemedicine now um many years ago by looking at what was happening with uh with different platforms doing different stuff And, and i would argue telemedicine is still in its infancy you know, in yeah. a, from a medical perspective, yeah. like, you know, th- there's, okay, there's big players out there and big names, but nobody's really dominating. It's not really the, the way um, that we're doing things in healthcare. And, you know, you and me before, before the interv- interview started, we spoke about how important it is going to, uh, is going to be coming in. And I think people need to realize as well that they need to switch on a bit because there, there are going to be some issues in the future if they don't start engaging with these kind of platforms. What are your thoughts about training? around telemedicine and that kind of thing i mean is it something i mean you're probably closer to medical schools than i'm now but yeah, yeah. do you do you see training coming through in telemedicine and things like that at the moment so i it, it's a difficult one for medical schools so my so my wife is a is a lecturer uh, at the leeds dental university um yeah so i can see it from an academic perspective from her side what goes on in terms of how do they plan the year and, mm. and the um the different year groups and the different uh, areas of material it's hard for them to do what they really want to do because the amount of organization and the limited resources they have it's hard for them to implement these changes mm. my my general thoughts and uh, you know I, I give a lot of uh, talks to the london universities leeds universities as well medics as well as non-medics sometimes the commu- co- computing societies invite me for a talk um the whole medical system in terms of the way that we do training you know the the syllabus i think it needs to change um you know maybe when you and i when we were educated as medics we were taught to be a walking encyclopedia yes you know these are all the syndromes you need to to learn which you will never see in your career but learn these syndromes these are all the medications which you're never ever going to prescribe because it's beyond your realms and only a you know tertiary care specialist will prescribe this but learn what they are and learn the side effects and blah 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 and then you come out into the world of medicine now in let's say 2020 and i don't need any of this like the medic we were before was a very paternal i know everything you know nothing i'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to go away and do it and that's not medicine today medicine today is you're a patient i'm the doctor it's a partnership what have you found on the internet okay great so let me steer you away from that let me steer you towards this actually you're right you know when you googled that red swollen big toe yeah you're right it's gout and did you read about what you want to do about it these are your options let me guide you towards those so all the de- all the information we ever le- learn at medical school or 
you know, aeronautical engineering or whatever degree you want to talk about, it's all available on the internet. You know, the whole university, <laughs> the whole university degree, yeah. everyone's university degree, the whole contents of your syllabus is available on the internet. It just doesn't have a structure and it doesn't give you a certificate at the end. So we need to move away from this idea that the medic needs to be this walking encyclopedia. What we need to be is somebody who understands the material and can guide others through the material. And we need to work on things like you say, the, the soft points or the soft touches. So how are you going to communicate to the patient? Look, it's important you learn about telemedicine. How are you going to organize your department? Look, an issue we have in the NHS, if we, if we care so much about the NHS and we're passionate about it, we need people that are going to solve problems from the inside. We need more leadership courses. We need more entrepreneurial courses. And when I've said this before on a panel, I've been challenged and I've had um, other speakers say, you know, we're not here to produce entrepreneurs. We're not here to produce innovators. You know, we need worker bees and we need the worker bees to get to work. And I, and I just turned around to them. I said, but this is why the NHS is in the state that it is. What do you think these medics are going to be in 10 years time? This is good. You know, she's going to be a GP and she's a partner at a practice and she has no idea how to look at a spreadsheet. She has no management skills, but she's the partner meant to be leading the practice. This chap here is meant to be leading his anesthetic department. He's the lead of ICU. He does not have a scooby-doo about hiring and firing and what the litigation around that is. And this is the issue we have, is that we are producing medics solely focused on being worker bees. And maybe there's some political reasons there as well. We don't want us to, to get above our station. But you, if you truly want to build the next generation of medics and you truly want to you know, push the NHS on so that number one, it can survive, let alone flourish, but number one, let it survive and then let it flourish. These are the kind of soft skills I think you need to teach to the students. They need to know about technologies. It needs to kind of trigger some kind of innovation within their brain going, okay, so if I'm head of a department, what would I do? How could I make things better? And you need to encourage them and show them examples where so-and-so came through and their audit actually turned into something. Their quality improvement project actually turned into buying some kind of machine and I think that's the disheartening thing unfortunately maybe in our time hopefully it's not so much the case now but you work really hard on an audit project quality improvement project it starts off as a tick box exercise for your training but towards the end you're actually really passionate about it and you think look I've got the numbers I've got the data I've got the qualitative answers here like all the nursing staff want this to happen so let's make this happen you present it and they're like yeah no we're not going to do that thanks thanks so uh, you, that's your audit box ticks for your training it's a shame and it is disheartening and it's happened to me on many occasions but going back to medical chain this is obviously an example of where that process has actually worked and so the learning journey for you to say from going from a point of going like okay i've built this or maybe i've got this idea for this this cloud-based telemedicine platform that could have any number of benefits to any number of people, huge amounts of people, different organizations, different job titles, loads of people are going to benefit from this. How do you go about saying, how, how do I turn this into a business? How do I get this adopted? I think that's the real challenge. So I, I was fortunately very, very blessed that my family members or my brother-in-laws were technical people. So my co-founder of Medical Chain, uh, Mo Tayeb, he's started and exited many a, a, a tech company. Um, and I remember I went to him originally with this idea uh, and he wasn't interested. Um, and he told me, Look, <laughs> if you if you want to go squirrel away at this idea, I think there's some GoDaddy website. You can employ somebody on fi <laughs> Fiverr.com. They might make it for you. I was okay, nice, getting taken really seriously. Uh, then I went to my wife's brother-in-law uh, who used to work for Sophos 
in Oxford. And I said, mate, look, I got this idea. I want to put it together. And this was actually, I'm talking to you just before medical chain. We made a website called DischargeSummary.co.uk, which is still live today. And it helps junior doctors essentially generate a standardized uh, narrative that gets copied and pasted into the discharge summaries for conditions. So you don't have to overthink it. You click a few buttons, it's generated the document, and then you use whatever discharge summary system you're using. And it got used in Leeds, University of Amazing. Wales Hospital in London. Yeah, it, it's, it's spread. And, you know, that's where, you know, things really kicked off. Anyway, Barra, or we call him Barry, helped me build this thing, taught me a little bit of coding, taught me how to make the website. We worked on it together. We launched it. It was successful. A drug pharmaceutical company came along who noticed it was being used in Leeds and said, we look quite interested in this. You know, do you want some money for this? Uh, and maybe you can start making stuff for us. I'm a medic. I'm not a technical person. Barry is a technical person. He's not a medic and neither of us are business people. So we went back to Mo, told him where we were up to. And he was like, all oh, right, wow. So you guys actually got somewhere with that. So it's like, yeah, okay. Now you're interested. Traction. So, yeah. Traction. So, you know, <laughs> like a bit proper businessman, he wasn't going to waste his time. Um, so then he said, okay, what is it you actually want to build? Is this, is this what you were talking to me about? And I said, no, look, if I, if I didn't have limited resources or limited staff or limited skill set, I would build. And I described to him medical chain. You know, I, I told him when I'm working in A&E and patients are coming to me and I need to treat them with antibiotics, I don't have access to their GP records. They know they're allergic to something, but they don't know what it is. And I'm playing Russian roulette, giving them an antibiotic in the department, which I hope doesn't kill them. And I just said, you know, maybe that was good enough 20 years ago, but it's just not good enough now. Um, and this concept of patients having access to their records, or at least the records being shared across different uh, specialties and domains, this is not a new idea. You know, it has been around for 20, 30 years, but we probably didn't have the technological ability to do it back then. So one was building the team. And the team, as I say, I had these family members, so I, I trust them absolutely, you know, implicitly trust them. And Mo's got a few technical guys who've worked on some projects for him before, build it. Okay, I'm an NHS doctor, talk to the consultants, find out who the IT guys are, let's try and roll this out. And then you realize you then stood at really the face of a cliff um, because to penetrate the NHS, wow. You know, like it's not the, the technical side is not the challenge at all. That's not the hard lifting. The heavy lifting is how do you penetrate this granite surface, which is like 50 miles deep mountain rock face. And that's what you feel like when you're coming up against the NHS. And there's people right at the top of that mountain face looking down at you saying, right, if you want to get up here, you've got to fill in these forms. You've got to get on this framework. You've got to have proven this. And it's like, okay, so cool. So how much does it cost to get to the top? Well, you've got to come with at least 50K. And it's like, okay, so these forms and these things are not really designed for startups like me, are they? They're really designed for the big boys and you're, you're there trying to rinse them just to let them continue playing in your back backyard. Um, so thankfully, you know, the Dell boy in me comes out wheeling. <laughs> you know, you start going through the list of essential requirements and you start crossing them off and go, okay, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. You don't really need this yet. Okay, we'll come back to you and we'll do that later on. And you get it down to a reasonable bill uh, and what, what your team can bite off. So thankfully, we, we got on the um, dynamic purchasing framework, the DPS. So you'll find medical chain is a, or, or my clinic, which is the second business um, that we've morphed into, if you will, is a approved online consultation service. And we're on the G Cloud framework as well, which is the commercial uh, crown commercial um, service framework as well. So thankfully, we've managed to scale that bit of the wall. Um, from a business sense, 
now you have to decide what you do because there's still different uh, peaks to reach and different plateaus of the NHS. And then you've got the private sector, which is calling, which is a little molehill in comparison. And it's a lot more lucrative and it's a lot more uh, open to international markets rather than plugging everything absolutely everything you've got into the nhs so we're at this point where we're trying to straddle the two um and i'm saying this is a company which raised 24 million dollars by the way you know god god help the little guys out there um because it is hard it is hard and i think people are very passionate and they're very keen to help the nhs but the nhs does not help itself and you know, if we had a spokesman for the NHS joining this call, they would probably defend it and say, but we've got this thing, we've got AHSN, we've got these networks, we've got that. Yeah, in my experience, they're all not great. Um, and they're, they're just the same people being given different titles, but it's the same people. And the, the mindset has not changed. And, you know, the best thing that ever happened to us was COVID, to be honest with you. Um, and it's made people wake up, do things without all this kind of evidence-based uh, nonsense, which doesn't apply here. And, and we've seen how we've benefited already. I do. Uh, yeah, I, I do agree with the element of COVID. You know, when, when that came in and we just had this absolute necessity for things to be done or else things were going to break, all of a sudden, I want, I'm not going to say floodgates were opened, but, you know, calculated risk and things were, things were done. Like, you don't need to do this necessarily. Let's just get this in. Let's just do this. And everything was fine and in fact everything was great and in fact a lot of innovation happened and in fact in fact a lot of entrepreneurs i think got empowered or at least motivated or at least inspired by the fact that hey actually this could work and i think the whole health tech sector's just had that lift and i think that's been so important for all of us because it's hard doing things like raising money and in fact talking about raising money there's an interesting story here about how you raised that 24 million, right? Mm -mm. Yeah. So unique, I think is the right way to describe yeah. it. Um, so traditional people will invest via a, a, a VC or an angel investor or what, or they'd come to somebody like James, who's got money bags uh, <laughs> and, and he'd sort you out. So go to, go to James if you ever need <laughs> investment. Um, but essentially we, part of the kind of blockchain journey and looking into this technology is intertwined with cryptocurrency and Bitcoin um so we found a way of appealing to that market and saying look it's kind of like crowd crowdfunding if you will you can buy our cryptocurrency which is called a med token and we can try to raise funds through this and this med token hopefully will be deployed on the platform will be usable and we'll see how the cryptocurrency market's going to go so we managed to raise 24 million dollars doing something called an initial coin offering um so we raised that in the space of 10 months um and you know essentially we own all of it you know that we are the decision makers here there's no shareholders you don't have to answer to anybody obviously you have the community of people that that have supported you and, and given you their funds you, you yeah you respect them but in terms of from a going into boardroom meetings and saying look we need you to do this need to do that thankfully we're managing it ourselves and the beauty of raising the 24 million is that we raised it via bitcoin so it's good and bad so our, the mercy of the company's runway is on the value of bitcoin so if you go back maybe about a year ago or so it was down to like three thousand dollars or something like that or three thousand pounds and we're looking at each other and we're like right so we've got about a year to make this work or the company's <laughs> um and if you look at bitcoin today you know it's, it's gonna nearly touch thirty thousand pounds 
So it's like, right, so we've got about 10 years runway money here now uh, compared to what we were starting with. So again, it just adds flavor to our story and our journey. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting for us. um, And it puts us in a very strong position going forwards. It is. It's so cool. It's so interesting. And I, 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 yeah, I just love that. We are the health tech podcast, right? It's nice to hear that there are other ways of raising money rather than angels and VCs and going down the route of cryptocurrency. And as you say, an ICO, which is, you know, something which probably I can imagine will be increasingly popular as we go through. And especially when Bitcoin's doing what it's doing at the minute, like flying, well, mainly up and a bit Mm -hmm. down and all the rest of it. It's, um, a lot more people reading about it, a lot more people looking at this stuff and probably a lot more people buying Bitcoin. And um, yeah, super interesting way of doing it. And obviously because that's the tech that you're using for your platforms, it's, it's something that you understand deeply and not that we're giving any sort of investment advice here. You gotta, you gotta know your stuff if you're yeah, going to be no, doing, if you're going, if you're doing things like that. Um, but tell me about my clinic. You mentioned it there. You obviously morphed uh, medical chain into my clinic. Was that because of anything in particular? Yeah, so I mean, really, so so medical chain empowering patients to have access to the medical records. Nearly there, we have access to EMIS, for example. So we we will appear on the linkage keys when somebody talks to their GP practice. You can port your medical records to the medical chain platform, and that's something that we're very proud of. And hopefully, TPP will follow soon after. And now we've got access to forty million primary care records on our platform, if you will. However that's boring, you know, like having access to your <laughs> medical records, then what, you know, the whole power of having access to your medical records, if I talk to a complete stranger, if I talk to a knee specialist in America, I want that knee specialist to have access to my medical records so that they can see what the other doctors can see and then they can give me the best advice that they can. And it's not just starting on a, a blank piece of paper. So we were building a very robust, lean, electronic health record system called my clinic originally which was going to plumb in the medical chain uh, engine but also have telemedicine on there also have an electronic health record system on there booking and scheduling and we were building 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 and then covid came along like everybody else and we were talking to our friends who are based in africa and south america and they were saying you know it was devastating for them that the the doctors are self-isolating the patients are self-isolating and we're telling them well, you know don't you have a babylon don't you have a livy don't you have one of the... and they said no and, and you really realize how privileged we are in the uk or in the us we have so many different platforms you can turn to and these guys they don't you know they don't have a medically qualified one one that that meets all the clinical governance standards um and it's specifically tailored to help health professionals so essentially within three weeks, this was in March, within three weeks, Barra or Barry, who was earlier in the story, he totally stripped down my clinic to a very simple virtual waiting room for telemedicine. And we launched this completely for free and it was used within 78 countries immediately. And we saw a huge uptake. You know, people in Chile were using it. People all over Europe were using it. Russia, you know, you name it everybody was using it and the biggest surprise to us was that it was the non-medics and we realized that there's a huge collection of allied health specialists who have got completely left behind on this telemedicine journey you know they don't have an nhs login to use AccuraX. they don't have this they don't have that but they still need to communicate with their clientele with their patients whoever absolutely so our biggest users were dentists social workers physiotherapists oh cool and to be honest with you you know the, the 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 dentists were awesome group because the speed of feedback we were receiving was the, was totally pushing our my clinic on so we started off as a kind of like a free thing we'll park that there you can use that and we'll get back to doing medical chain 
but the dentists were like right i've got a walk-in service now i'm like what do you mean by walk-in service like well, obviously i can't see anybody's teeth but i've told my patients between 10 o'clock and two o'clock each day i'm available to answer any of your questions if you want to send me any pictures i'll do that the problem is i'm walking off to go make a cup of tea or i'm opening other web pages on my computer screen I look back at your my clinic page and I realize there's six, seven people waiting for me in my virtual waiting room and I didn't realize. Okay, fine. We put him a nice little Google notification. So in Chrome, it pops up. A patient is now waiting for you in the room. It was like perfect. Then he said, um, you know, how do I let the patients know that I'm there and I'll get to them? So we put on a sound notification to say, okay, when they're waiting for you, they'll hear you know, typical like a waiting room answer. It says, you know, the, the doctor knows you're waiting. They'll be with you soon. Then Leicestershire Teaching Hospital called, who are using it for their diabetes clinics. And then they called and said, you know that sound uh, prompt you've put on? We're like, yeah, yeah, do you love it? No, we absolutely hate it. Like, it's really annoying. <laughs> you know, our, our patients are waiting ages, so we don't want them to keep hearing this crap. How do we remove it? <laughs> okay, fine. So we'll put on this toggle bot button. So if you want it on for the dentist, nice. you can have it on. And if you want it off for the clinic, you can have it off. So really, you know, it's been such huge uptake and we're being driven by the feedback. So from starting off as a kind of, this is our way of giving back to the community. It's become its own business model. Uh, it's a freemium business. You subscribe if you want the kind of premium features. It's led to me writing a book as well about it now. Um, so we've got Medical Chain, we've got My Clinic, uh, and we've got these two horses which we're backing at the moment. That's awesome, man. Tell me about the book. Yeah, so the book, um, what can I say? We go back to Mo, who's the entrepreneur guy, and he was like, you need to get our learnings out there. You need to need to let people know what we've been doing and how we've been doing it. So I wrote a book called um, Can You Hear Me? Um, and I'll be, you know, I'll definitely be sending you a link to it, James, once it's out awesome. there. We're just editing it now at the moment. It's a very short book. It's about 30, 30 odd pages. But essentially, you know, to tell you the title, it's uh, the definitive guide for before, during and after a telemedicine video call to help you deploy and deliver a flawless service. And the idea is that I want to encourage anybody and everybody who's involved in healthcare to really embrace this technology. And it tells you, you know, it's like an idiot's guide this is what you need to do. This is what you need to, well, you don't need to download anything with our platform, but other platforms you could download stuff. This is how you need to access it. This is what you need to tell your reception staff. This is how you'd use it. And this is how you should perform a telemedicine consultation and what you should do afterwards. So it's a really simple guide. Uh, there's some condensed bits in it. It's hopefully when you see it, it's very colorful. It's very easy to, to read. It's not medic focused, um, but it's something we're very proud of because it talks about um, what we experienced firsthand putting this together and I want people to learn you know it's not not really there to promote my clinic it's just there to be a, a handbook for anybody I love that man and obviously me being very much in a content game at the minute it's an awesome piece of content because you are just going to be able to do so much with that and I like the fact as you say you know it's not it's not a business card for my clinic it's not like a walking advert for my clinic the whole point is that the world's moving towards this more and more telemedicine more and more technology in different ways and it's nice that you've got a hand in that kind of education bit you know you become a thought leader in the space and that is going to have positive impact on your business there's no two ways about it it's just a nice way of doing things and a nice way of getting that impact i suppose yeah i mean for sure i mean the thing you know we, we were mentioning it slightly or we we're touching on it before the interview started but i think you know using telemedicine at the moment seems like a luxury and I think for me and my colleagues, and I, and I say this to them all the time, there's a wave of litigation coming. 
you know, there's an absolute tsunami of litigation which is going to come across health professionals and they're not, not seeing this wave breaking. It's starting off as a small wave and it's going to turn into a tsunami. The difficulty we have, this is me talking to you now as a GP in primary care, is we have a huge number of patients we need to speak with each day and they can't all physically come down to the clinic. And from about February, March time until now, we've been putting on our keyboards in our notes. This is a COVID telephone, telephone conversation. And this is the advice we've been given to say, so when you look back in the notes and somebody's trying to sue you and say, why didn't you do X, Y, Z? You're going to say, oh, because, you know, it was a COVID telephone conversation. I'm sorry. You know, what, what's a COVID telephone conversation differ from a normal telephone conversation with a doctor? There is no difference. It's, 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 it's bogus. It's nonsense. And we're putting. This and so just, just to clarify then, so, cause I, I wasn't aware of this. So, mm. Has there been guidance that said you can cut down on documentation time as a GP if it's a COVID call? Just put the fact that it's a COVID call, that's going to be okay. Has somebody said that? It's, it's been heavily implied by the defense unions. Right. Um, and they said if you put this, this will show that, you know, you were working in kind of a duress time. Right. Um, and okay. that's, that's why the patient didn't get offered the smear test they were due right that's why they didn't come in for the spirometry test we would have normally done or the removal of earwax and you start thinking okay so so what are we actually doing with patients then because a lot of it seems like firefighting of yeah i know you've you've got a very bad hip but the hospital aren't seeing you and i can't see you so covid telephone conversation i haven't examined you but here's some painkillers and I think we've been very fortunate that the general public have been very understanding with the situation, but I really envisage a situation. And I, and I think this is, I think this will literally happen and, and mark my words, there will be a case like this, which you'll read about on the BBC or the telegraph. It will be GP spoke to me about my sick child. The GP reassured me about my sick child. My sick child died the next day. Mm-hmm. And what the defense will come to will come to, how did the GP in the current COVID situation try their best to assess that child? And it's going to be, well, I spoke to them over the phone. And if I was prosecuting, I would say, but you've got about six telemedicine solutions available to you that are completely for free. And I know you've got a login for three of them. Why did you not do a video call with the mum just to see that child in the background? Because if you did the video call and you said, child doing a handstand in the background, eating some Frosties, and the child died the next day, as, as tragic and traumatic as that would be, at least as your own defense, you go, but when I saw them, they looked all right to me. And I think when this case comes along, and this case will come along, the doctors are going to have to realize that saying I did a telephone conversation in this climate with all the technology available to you will not cut the mustard. You know, by all means, you know, somebody saying I've got a urinary tract infection. Sure. Bish, bash, bosh, four minute phone call. It's done on the phone. But the kind of ill patients, I'm struggling with my breathing. Did you do a video call with a person struggling with their breathing? No, I just said they're talking in full sentences over the phone call. And I put it down to that. Really? Is, is that is that good enough? Do we think that's good enough? And even if you clinically think that's good enough, it's like when we say, you know, when we practice medicine, they say if it's not written, it never happened. Yeah. And I, I, it's interesting coming from yourself with your G, with your, I've got a clinic this afternoon, GP hat on as well, because there'll be people that are thinking, well, it is still a consultation. You are still writing what the person has said and blah, blah, blah. But, it, but here and now you are telling me, telling us, telling all our listeners that actually you are gleaning a lot from looking at a child in the background. And I'm a clinician too, man, by background, I get it. 
you, we're, we're taught, aren't we, in examinations, you know, you decide at the end of the bed whether they're well or they're unwell. You decide that with just a glance anyway. So it makes sense that with the ability to have that glance, you would. I mean, there's a there's a very famous clinician called Sir William Osler, uh, uh, who, you, you, you know, the, the, the grandfather of medicine, if you will. Mm. You know, and he said the whole art of medicine is in observation. Mm. You know, and I think pre-telemedicine dawning on us the way that it has yes fine it was too complicated logistically it was hard to set up it would take you 20 minutes just to do one video call the patient doesn't have a smart device to do it it was an acceptable answer we i think we're now in that gray area where you, some clinics will get away with saying look logistically we're still not set up we're not ready for it but when you've got nhs digital giving strict guidelines of saying we all have to be digital ready and you've got the covid situation and there are people that I, I know for a fact, I can give you a real, real case scenario, um, James. I was doing a weekend clinic. Mm. This old man, I think he was 85 or 86, called and said, I've got this uh, little spot near my backside, which is painful, comes and goes. The doctor gave me some antibiotics for it before. I was just hoping maybe you could see me and give me some antibiotics. My first attitude was, right, it's a pilonidal cyst. You know, this mm. basically happens within the, the cleft of the buttock at the bottom. He's had this before. Give him some antibiotics. If it's not better within a week, then it's probably worth seeing him. Anyway, talking to this old chap, it turned out his wife had only died two weeks ago from COVID. I was heartbroken for the guy. And I thought, okay, fine. Just come into the clinic. Let me just see you because at least we can have some kind of human interaction. And, and I, But I know I'm going to give you antibiotics, whatever I see. Anyway, he came in, had a nice chat obviously with PP and all the rest of it, just for your listeners before they think mm -hmm. I'm, I'm some maverick. Um, <laughs> I, I looked at his buttock cleft. To be honest with you, there wasn't much there. There was really mm. nothing there. And I, and I think he called because he just wanted some attention. Anyway, before he left, he said, just one more thing. Can I just show you this thing on my nose? And he pulled down his face mask and he had the biggest fungating, ulcerating squamous cell carcinoma, which had eroded half of his like ALAR, oh my ALAR away. And I was like, so that's what that smell was. I thought it was just him because he's not washed because he's, his wife has, has oh recently died. Goodness. And this thing is absolutely ulcerating on his face. And this is the massive danger, you know, that's mm. going unreported or, or underreported really with the whole COVID situation. There's so many patients we are not seeing face-to-face, -face, video call, whatever it may be, that these things are getting missed. Mm. You know, that's such a good point. So what would your advice be then, I suppose, to kind of wrap this up into a, into a positive message? For both, I guess this applies for both, right? For everybody, everybody's a patient. Even if you're a mm -hmm. clinician listening, you're still a patient. So for patients and indeed clinicians in this era of the gray area, mm -hmm. what would, and it might, it might be, it's probably something you've written in the book, right? That what, what is, what is the advice? What is best practice while uh, we're in this? zone i think that is what's key if i was a patient i'd be talking to my practice and saying what are your best practice default triage situations which go immediately to a video call you know everything you know this is it comes on to kind of another with double standards which i see with medics for example like we're, we're doing this podcast right now but people can't tell that we're actually looking at each other face to face over video yeah and when i've done video calls in my Royal College of GP uh, chair hat on or in the, the Leeds local medical committee, 
when we're talking to each other, we know there's an etiquette that you need to put your video on. It's not nice to stare at a blank screen, a blank screen. And we get so much more from just talking to each other, looking at each other. Hundred percent. But then you'll talk to the medics, which will tell you, "I don't get anything from video calls." A uh, telephone's mm, absolutely it's... fine. It's like, but mate, when we're having our meetings, you, yeah. you you have a go at me for not putting my video on because you want to look at my expressions. But when you're talking to the patient, you're not interested in looking at their expressions at all. How how can you how can you say both statements? So it's so, a good point. So for argument's sake, I'd say everything should be telemedicine. You know, every every phone call should be converted into telemedicine. And where it can't for logistical reasons from the patient's end fine, we'll just go with a phone call or something broke down. If you really want to do the bare minimums as a practice, you need to decide anything dermatological needs to be a video call. Anything involving a child needs to be a video call. Anything which is musculoskeletal needs to be a video call. Basic, has to be, baseline. And your receptionist has to be trained, confident, booking in that patient. And I think that the real you know, it, it needs some work and it needs some time. And, and the clinics are absolutely swamped. I mean, we're trying to roll out this vaccine at the moment. So I don't know how, you know, I'm, I'm giving you a, a euphoric, perfect scenario here, but really it needs somebody to sit down, figure out the logistics. And I hope the book does that to show people how easy it is. It probably will take you just a day or two to figure it out, but then you can just have your receptionist book patients directly into, for example, my clinic, a virtual waiting room. And so you're coming at nine, 10 past nine, 20 past nine, half nine, and the doctor on the other end has got their login, can see them popping in, and it's like a normal waiting room. Yeah. This, pers this person came early, I spoke to them. This person I had to take a bit longer with, okay, the third person had to wait a bit. And you just plow through them like you would a normal clinic. I love it, man. So what is next for Medical Chain and my clinic? What have you got coming up? What's, uh, yeah, what's, the, what's the roadmap, if you will? Yeah, so the, the, the roadmap really is we need to finish off the proper health passport integration. Uh, we are having very good conversations with pharmaceutical companies at the moment because they are the, probably one of the most interested parties in patients' medical records. And the way we're going about this is very ethical and moral in the sense that, well, the control is always with the patient and the patient will grant you access to the medical records, whether a one-off or time limited, and you need to come to some kind of financial arrangement as in as company, we will broker that arrangement and take our fee as well. Nice. It's very important that not only do they see the medical records, but they see the patient's medical journal or their journey. So that the patient reported outcomes, if you imagine you've got an A4 piece of paper on the left side is the clinician's input. And on the right side is the patient saying, I was given the COVID, va COVID vaccine on day two, my legs felt heavy. Day three, I felt a bit of a runny nose. Day four, I was fine again. That's a huge amount of information. It's extremely valuable. Um, and I think that's, that's where we're heading to with medical chain with my clinic. We're going to do a very big marketing launch soon. Um, probably targeting more America than the UK, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, and look, there's many, many players out there, you know, they refer to it as a red sea, if you will, but, but I think there's still plenty of opportunity to make a, a, a good business out there. Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. You've, I, I, uh, I waited forever for you to invite me, man. I yeah. <laughs> I don't know how this slipped my mind, but I'm glad it's taken this long because there's so much that, that you're doing now, even compared to what, like a year ago since roughly we last, I was yeah. probably before then, but you guys are just, uh, are just rocketing forwards. It's so good to hear. And I think one of the bits for me, mate, is that you are a practicing clinician and you have 
you are, it's almost like you uphold the company to the same standards. Well, it's not even almost like it. It is like it. You're holding the company to the same standards as you would hold yourself as the same privacy, the same confidentiality, the same quality, the same, all of those different things. And it seems that what you're building is purpose built in, in the sense that you are the user, you are the customer, you are extremely connected into that entire it's an over word you I've used word but ecosystem and you're built into the to the GP society you're built into the pay like it, it it's all it's all there for you to to figure out what the best solution is and you've built it and it's nice to see it's nice to hear and I'm glad that there are you know clinician entrepreneurs like yourself that are that are doing this championing all sides in the right way if you know what I mean it's very easy for as you say for for a clinician to lean into what's best for a clinician it's easy for a patient to lean into what's best for a patient similarly from a policy perspective it's easy for all those different groups when they become entrepreneurs to lean into what makes the most sense it's, it appears to me that you're really integrating all of those different things which i think is awesome and it's it's no it's no surprise to me that you're seeing the level of success that you are because there's plenty to learn from this approach i think um very, very generous of you thank you james Mate, not at all. For our listeners, I tend to ask people if you've got any asks. And so there's lots of people that listen to this, the 115 countries and, you know, many, many downloads a month now. Um, we've got hostel groups that listen. We've got managers, clinicians, patients, pharma, loads of people that listen to this podcast. Would you have any asks of our audience? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd have an ask on a um, for their own personal development uh, and, and an ask from my, my company's benefit of yours. So on their own personal development, I, I think I would say, you know, keep challenging the status quo. I think there are lots of advocates out there and there, there are lots of people that are moving into the space. I mean, they, they were just talking on the news the other day how Amazon is going to start pushing harder into healthcare now as well. And I think if you're involved in that space, it's a really good place to be and you should never, ever undervalue your experience and your skill set. You know, there's, there's people out there who are probably healthcare assistants, nurses. Look, I'm not a healthcare assistant. You're not a nurse. We don't know what they go through. And we need entrepreneurs in all these kind of fields, whoever you may be, because you know what you know, you're, where you're being told. Well, that's the way it's always been. And that's where you need to fix it in your domain, whoever you are. So that's that's what I'd say on their own personal level. For me, I'd say, look, go to myclinic.com right now. You know, look at the Web page, create your own clinic. Anybody can create their own clinic right now. Do a video call with your gran and get her on board as if she's your patient and try the system out because there is going to be something part of your, you know, part of your, your day-to-day work routine, whether it's talking to colleagues or an MDT or something with a patient where you can use our platform right now and it's completely for free. Um, and, you know, if you, if you do go on to pay the premium account, that's fantastic. What I'm more interested in really is your feedback. The more people using this, the more people that can hopefully write back to me, you know, via LinkedIn or, you know, my email address is Abdullah at myclinic.com. Very easy to remember. Um, and, you know, any feedback is absolutely welcome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, buddy. And as Dalboy said, we'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be millionaires next, next year, mate. Always, man. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one, buddy. Cheers, man. Thanks again for inviting me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.